Welcome to Make Good, the podcast about yarn and knitting from Scratch Supply Co. We're recording today in downtown Lebanon, New Hampshire, and we're really excited to be here. I'm Karen. And I'm Jessica. This week, before we get started, we wanted to just thank you all for your flexibility and patience with us. We had scheduled a live with Make Good podcast, and we needed to cancel that time because we had some extenuating circumstances. We still intend to do it, though, and we want to talk with you and answer your questions and do a little bit of live check-in on our knit-along. So keep an ear out because we will be letting you know when the new date and time for that is. But if you can't find it anywhere, it's not that you're missing it. It's that it doesn't actually exist. We'll keep you posted. It's kind of like it is still a work in progress. Oh, <laughs> nice lead-in. So we've been getting some requests to talk about works in progress. Kind of a lot recently. I feel like maybe the season has changed, like the weather has changed here. And I don't know if people are turning over their cooler weather clothes to their warmer weather clothes and they're stumbling across project bags and going, oh, what have I done? (laughs) But there seems to be a lot of interest in what knitters sometimes call whips. Yeah, so that might be a term that you've come across. WIP or WIP, which is work in progress. And sometimes your WIP is something that you are actively working on. Sometimes it's a project or one of a lot of projects that may have been set aside or put in time out. Sometimes WIPs turn into UFOs, which is an unfinished object. So many clever knitter <laughs> acronyms. It can be overwhelming. And if whip is new to you or you are currently being haunted by your whips, hopefully today we can give you some supportive ideas that will help you sort out your knitter life. So there are a couple of different types of knitters who might end up with works in progress. You could be a one-project person. I feel like they're maybe rare. It's less frequent that we come across knitters who are like, I only ever work on one project at a time. I am a solo knitting person, just one project. But they exist. And what these people do, mystifyingly to me, is that they pick a project, they start it, and then they knit until it's done. That's fake. Like, it's entirely done. They finish it in one shot with no distraction. I a little bit wonder if there is a Venn diagram for those people, the single project people, and the I don't have a stash kind of knitter. I can see that. They maybe just don't like to have a lot of stuff surrounding their craft. You may be more familiar with the multiple project people, which is definitely the category that I personally fall into. And there are lots of different ways to be a multiple project knitter. Sometimes people work on multiple projects at one time because they like to have a rotation going for some reason. Maybe you have your main project that's got lots of instruction or you kind of need to pay attention to it. But you also want to have social knitting where you can just kind of cruise along and not really pay attention to what your hands are doing. Or maybe you need a variety of fibers or needle sizes to keep your hands happy. Or maybe you just have a wandering heart for projects and new things excite you. So you're constantly putting things down and starting new ones. And it's not like these are my three projects that are in constant rotation until they're all done. But this is my new project. But wait, that's my new project. (laughs) And also now I think this could be my new project too. And the previously cast on projects kind of get shoved aside for myriad reasons. 
I find that for me personally, if I let a project get shoved aside for too long, there's a window. And if I don't come back to it within that window, it's very out of sight, out of mind. It's a goner. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes things get set aside just because there's something new and exciting that comes up. I think that happens to a lot of us. I know that definitely happens to me. Sometimes things get set aside because you hit a snag with it. Maybe you just ran into some trouble. You made a mistake that you couldn't immediately identify how to correct. You didn't like the show you were watching while you were knitting it. And so you were just like, now I have an emotional yuck about this. Like, it just has to go. (laughs) I think that that happens to lots of knitters kind of regularly. I'm knitting something right now. And I realized last night while I was working on it that I had offset my two by two rib by one stitch, three rows below where I was, and it almost broke me. I was like, I'm not ripping this out. (laughs) And I also don't really want to have to drop down and fix it, but I can never wear this to work if I don't fix it because it's a glaring mistake in the ribbing. Yeah. I had to deal with it. Some of those projects are just destined to be frogged. That's the truth. It's a hard reality to deal with for some of us, but sometimes it's just staring you right in the face. There's no sunk cost fallacy here. Just because something has been a work in progress for a couple of months, maybe longer, doesn't mean that you are obligated to finish it. We've talked about that before. Sometimes frogging something is the answer. And if it's something that you put away because it gave you bad feelings, and when you take it out again after a reasonable period of time, it still gives you bad feelings, you will reclaim the yarn and it will be something it wants to be more than whatever you were trying to make it. But there's also no ceiling on the number of works in progress that you could have in theory. If you look around online and do a little Googling of works in progress knitting, there are kind of a shocking number of videos on YouTube that are, how many is too many works in progress? (laughs) My answer is no, there's never an answer. It's whatever your own internal metric is. And it's okay to keep ignoring them if it makes you feel better to ignore them. But if you have gotten to the point where you're feeling overwhelmed, your works in progress are like screaming to be dealt with. It's time to get organized. I should get one of those signs that says, one of these days I'm going to get organized. You mean organized? Organized. And I'm not telling you to Marie Kondo (laughs) your knitting projects. Oh, I will. Well, Karen will. (laughs) Because Karen is a minimalist. (laughs) And I am complete chaos. You don't want to let your knitting feel like it's overwhelming or out of control. If that is a feeling that you are having when you're thinking about your knitting to-do list, just change your knitting to-do list. I co-sign that. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The first step is kind of confronting what's there. You just have to actually look at it. So you take out all of your works in progress. You got to empty all your project bags. You're going to find some tools that you've been looking for. You're going to find a lot of tools. Treasure hunt surprise bonus. And you want to separate your projects out into a couple of different categories. So I think some of you are going to be pleasantly surprised when you discover that you have one, two, five, eight projects that have been in hiding that need a bind off or a button or to have armpits grafted or just like some small amount of finish work, something kind of minimal. But at the last point in time when you were working on them, you were like, I can't do this. I'm going to do this later. And you put it away. Six minutes of attention and you will have a newly finished object. I think that happens a lot. 
as a group, as a community, we fail to remember how little is left to do on some of these things. And we're just like, it's not done yet. And I want to do this other thing. And that is fine. But it can be really pleasantly surprising to find out that there's only weaving in ends or something like really quick. Then you could be like, oh, that's actually not a work in progress. That is now a finished project. I like how you frame that as it's not done yet, but I want to start a new thing. Because what I say to myself is, oh, this is done. (laughs) I'm going to cast on the new project. I'm sure I can get to that later. And then a year and a half later, I find something that needed two stitches finished. I could have been wearing it. But no, in my head, it was done. But for some reason, unwearable. (laughs) I'm very much the other way where I will be like, I'm so close to done with this. I do nothing else until it's finished. Stay up till one in the morning just to get it on the blocking mat, even though the blocking mat would be there for you in the morning. No, I want to be done with it. I want to go to bed knowing that I'm done with it. We all finish in our own ways. (laughs) I feel like those are your hidden gems in your work in progress pile. It's maybe the most satisfying discovery. There are also the projects you'll find as you're categorizing all of your works in progress that got set aside because they need help. I think a lot of us tend to think of those projects as being in timeout, like they're unruly toddlers. Yeah. That might mean that you dropped some stitches or made some other mistake where you're like, this is baffling to me. I cannot deal with this today. This is a problem for another day. And you put it aside. Or it could be something as not technically involved, but an emotional hurdle, like I need to wind more yarn and I don't want to wind this yarn. (laughs) So it gets set aside because at that moment in time, you cannot continue working on it while your yarn is twisted in a skein. (laughs) Time out for whatever reason. But if you can take a look at those projects and say, oh, well, all I need to do is this, or I need to go ask someone for help with that, or maybe YouTube has the answer for whatever this is, do a little bit of assessment and then figure out if now is the time to tackle that project, or if you just have a to do list for it when you come back to it later. I do think, especially when it's something where you need to enlist the help of another person, there is a really comforting emotional barrier that time has given you. Emotional distance is highly underrated. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like sometimes you just need that gap to be able to face your knitting. So this next type of work in progress, and I say that loosely, is one that I am super guilty of. And maybe once or twice a year, I go through this process of confronting my project bags and excavating, discovering what's inside. Sometimes you don't know what's inside. (laughs) And when I say that, I mean, you can look at it and you can see what it is, but you have no memory of this place. You're not sure what the yarn was. There's definitely not a ball band in that bag. Oh, no. Nor is there a pattern. Of course not. It really could be anything at this point. (laughs) And I do this all of the time. And I don't know why. It's a quirk of my personality that I shove my patterns in one bag and I shove my projects in another. And it is luck. It is the luck of the universe. It is the stars shining down on me that they are ever in the same place at the same time. So for me, those are often lost cause projects. I don't know what size that sweater was. It looks like it's on a cable and I've taken off my needle tips. I don't even know what size needle (laughs) I was using anymore. That's the worst. 
The thing is, the makers of the needles have provided us with the tools to avoid this problem, and yet I create this situation for myself all of the time. Depending on the needle set you're working with, there may be those little discs, and they're discs that have needle sizes. So when you take the tips off your interchangeable cords, you put the disc on that says US5 or whatever, and then you put the end stoppers on. Have I ever once in my life thought I should use the disc? No. I always think, I'll remember what this was. Literally never going to happen. No. (laughs) (laughs) Now that I'm reminded of this tool that I probably have somewhere in my knitting notions, even if I were a more organized version of chaotic me, I could put the number of stitch markers on the cord for whatever the needle size is, or like a post-it note and just clip it to it with like a (laughs) clothespin or anything. Literally anything. I could say, I'm done with this. I'm not knitting it anymore for the time being. But future me will appreciate knowing what this is. And never once in decades of knitting have I thought (laughs) that. I just shoved that bag somewhere and it's like it never existed. It is very interesting to me that this entire hobby on some level is about future you. Future (laughs) you is going to have a sweater or a hat or a sock or whatever. But in this case, you are saying, future you, I do not care. Can I quickly tell you about when I had to do some kind of forensic knitting? (laughs) Yes. I knit The Star-Crossed by Jackie Sieslack. I like that sweater. I was chaotic and I lost my contrast color yarn, so I had to leave the color work off the sleeves because I just lost the yarn. And I did find it later, but it was long after the sleeves had been bound off, so that was never going to (laughs) happen. At some point... When I picked this back up, because it had been in timeout for some time, I realized that it needed sleeves. They had to be picked up. There were no needles in the bag with this project. And I had a hazy memory that I did not use the needle size the pattern instructed me to use because I did swatch and I couldn't get gauge with those needles. Uh huh. In the intervening time, I lost the paper pattern that had had my notes on it and the swatch. And I had to guess. (laughs) And what guessing looked like was me starting to knit sleeves and knitting a sleeve until it was long enough for me to measure gauge and realize, well, that's not the right size. (laughs) And then ripping that knitting out and then doing it again. And it took me three tries to get the correct size needle (laughs) so I could knit sleeves and have that sweater be done. Which I think was one of the most Herculean efforts I've put into (laughs) any of my knitting projects. On a different day, I would have just said, forget it. This sweater's never getting made. (laughs) The entire body is done. And now it's a vest because I've definitely done that too. Sometimes we get projects that are in different stages of completion and have even more question marks than that. Because sometimes you really genuinely have absolutely no idea. Mm. And sometimes it's fine. Sometimes you're like, I knit this sweater and all I have left to do is sew on the buttons. And I don't remember the name of the pattern, but you know what? You can still sew the buttons on. Right. But sometimes you still have nine tenths of the sweater to knit. That makes it tough. Got to make a different choice. then. (laughs) (laughs) Now, sometimes you open up one of these project bags and you look at your project and you look at the pattern and you think to yourself, I don't care about this anymore. I'm just not doing this. What was I thinking six years ago when I cast this on? I would never wear this now. That's totally fine, too. You're not the only knitter that that's happened to. Let us move on with our knitting lives. We've talked about this in the frogging episode. You don't have to finish a project. You don't have to finish it. Mm -hmm. 
if anyone has the authority to give you permission, it's you. It's not us. But we support you in that decision to abandon a no longer interesting knit. Just move on with your life. Time is precious. (laughs) So once you get to this point, you've assessed what you have. Now it's time to make a plan, friends. (laughs) This is the exciting part. Once you've identified all of these things, you can make a checklist if that appeals to your organized or chaotic knitter brain. You can decide these are the three most important projects because these are the ones I would like to wear, or these are the ones that I can identify. Prioritize your projects, and if things need to go back into timeout or storage, however you'd like to think of it, you can make a plan for those too. Someone I know, maybe me, has... (laughs) A eyebrow raising number of socks in progress in project bags. But if I were a good knitter that engaged in best practices for care of my fiber, I would think to myself, I don't know when I'm going to pick that sock back up. I'm going to pop it in a Ziploc bag and keep it safe. And you can do that. And if you have information about what they are, take a Sharpie and write what those projects are on the Ziploc bag. So someday when you revisit these works in progress, you know what you're looking at and you don't have to worry about whether or not moths have gotten to them. Shudder. Because a lot of time when something ends up in timeout, it's not ending up in timeout with the intention of it being a long-term situation. But if you've come across something and you're like, "Mm, I'm not getting to this right now and it's been a little while, you can also just accept that it's kind of long-term storage for this half-knit sock and make informed choices at that point. Stick some cedar shavings in there and tuck it back into bed. (laughs) (laughs) If you have made a pile of projects that you want to frog, that's great. It's like shopping from your own stash. You can reclaim that yarn. And if you need some emotional support and cheerleading and a little bit of direction about frogging, you can go back and listen to episode 58 because we talk a whole bunch about it. And everyone got really excited about frogging after that episode released. So maybe there will be a resurgence. (laughs) All right. So what do you do about keeping it from getting out of control in the first place? If you are somebody who feels overwhelmed by the works in progress that you have put aside and now you've confronted the situation and you are going to deal with the situation, how do you then avoid a recurrence of the situation? Okay. So here's what I think about this. I think of my knitting stuff, stash and tools and works in progress, how some people approach their garage or their basement or other storage slash workspace where you do your best to get it organized, but it's like a living, breathing space. There's activity going on and things are getting moved around and used. And for a while, you're going to do a really good job of putting things back where they belong And then some weeks are busy and you're tired and stuff gets shoved into corners and like (laughs) it just happens. Nobody cleans out the garage and then it's just organized for the rest of their lives. See, this is how we're different people because (laughs) no, (laughs) I don't even believe that person exists. (laughs) Because I just cleaned out our barn and the thought of it ever getting full of stuff again is giving me the feelings. I'll try to never go in there then (laughs) because it just happens. It happens everywhere. You know, you get your organizational system, but I think every once in a while, you have to revisit and reassess. And if you do that on a more regular schedule, it's easier to deal with than doing it once every six or eight years. 
So maybe once or twice a year, you go through and you check on your knitting things. You're like, maybe that yarn was not destined to be this. I'm going to make something else with it. Or I do want to wear this this winter, so let's button this project up. And if you can kind of keep it in check after you've resolved your most pressing works in progress, then you can try to prevent those piles from reaccumulating. That's my best advice for this, to just check on it more frequently. Another thing that I think is helpful, but could also just create additional piles, <laughs> is that if you're identifying that you have a specific type of project that keeps getting put into your work in progress pile, like the finishing steps, or what have I done to this type of project, make a fix it pile or make a finishing work pile. And then every so often just say, this weekend, I'm not knitting. I'm just doing the finish work on these things. And you resolve six projects in one fell swoop. And you feel like knitting tightens. Like you are the champion of your knitting because you can finish a whole bunch of things at once. Or you can schedule an appointment at your local yarn shop and say, I have three projects and I have done things to them. And I don't know what those things are. Please help me. <laughs> But if you can kind of segment the reasons why things end up going into timeout, I think it can help you deal with them in a way that's more constructive and efficient for you as a knitter than just sticking a project bag inside of another project bag in a suitcase under your bed. I had another thought, highly theoretical for me, because I'm incapable of doing this. This is going to be amazing. Let's <laughs> But I think cataloging helps a lot of knitters. Oh, yeah. Keeping track of what you were working on in some sort of organized way, whether that be a project notebook or you use the projects function on Ravelry or you have downloaded the making app and you're keeping track of your projects there. There are places to document what the pattern is and what the yarn is and what size you're knitting, what needles you're using. You can hold that information somewhere. And when I say you, I mean all of you and just not me, <laughs> because past behavior has shown that I will never do this effectively. But I think that for people who do take to this type of organization, it's fantastic. Where I often run into what am I looking at problem is with the size specifically. That would be something to keep in mind, because what I'll end up doing is I'll have a sweater that I knit. If it's top down, it'll be like past the sleeve openings. And then it just kind of stops. Do I know what size I cast on? No. Can I look at how many increases I did and then kind of assume that was all the increases I intended to do and then count how many stitches are on my body and try to figure it out from there? Yeah, but it sure would have been easier if I had just written down a two-digit number somewhere. It'd be a lot cooler if you did. <laughs> I feel like I need to start using my phone to, like, take a picture of my hand pointing to the size <laughs> that I'm knitting. On the pattern or something, because I'm never going to keep track of it otherwise. And then when I'm looking for a specific picture of a dog in six months, I'll scroll back and I'll find it. So really the key takeaway here is just find something that works for you and try not to stress about it. It's just your knitting, which in theory, you were in love with at some point. Take a peek to see what's in that bag and then make some choices to improve your knitting life. Think of all the needles you'll get back. You're going to be shocked at how many size sevens you own. <laughs> Speaking of needles, hey, Karen, what's on your needles? Oh. <laughs> oh, she just made a face at me. What was that? Okay. The sunshine on my shoulders. You're not saying that with a sunshiny attitude, Karen. Here's the thing. 
you have to continue to look at the pattern. I was so in deep with all of the intarsia and everything that I completely stopped paying attention to the actual color work pattern. And so what had happened was, you know, it's like the sun. It is. And to do that, because it's knit stitches, at the bottom of the sun outline, there was a rise of three stitches and then it would decrease by one stitch and then it would rise by three stitches and then it would decrease. The rise did not remain three stitches throughout the entirety, (laughs) which I didn't discover until I was almost done. And I realized what had happened and I was like, I'm going to try to retroactively do a lifeline back to where I can see this mistake happened. And that didn't work because of how I had done the intarsia. And so actually what I just ended up doing was ripping it back to the beginning of the intarsia. And then I put it in timeout. But I'm not letting myself start anything else until I get going on this again, because I can see the future and I can see that this would be an eternal work in progress if I don't pick it back up. It's relatable, though. (laughs) I surely have done that. That's why my cinnabar is shaped the way that it is. Yeah. I'm also really glad I caught it when I did because I was about to jump back into another three-color colorwork section, and it'll be fine. It'll go fast. How about you? What's on your needles? I am working on my cabled hat for the Make Good Cables Knit Along. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. I had been focused on a shawl for a class that I was teaching, which was lace knitting, and I was like, you know what? The class is over. And this is destined to be a shop sample. I'm not really on a timeline for this. I can put it down and knit the cabled project that I want. But I'm knitting the Tied Knots hat by Justina Lorkowska. Actually, that's the thing where I really made a mess of my two-by-two ribbing. What is wrong with me? (laughs) But for context, Stranger Things was very intense. I was feeling very worried about a number of characters. Yeah. And kind of knitting in a dark room, and my thumb hit a pearl bump where there shouldn't have been and alerted me to my many mistakes that I made. (laughs) Fortunately, it was easy for me to feel where the ribbing was misaligned, so I just dropped down and fixed things as I worked. And now I'm almost done with the brim of the hat, and I'm ready to dive into the cables. So we'll see how that goes while I'm finding out what happens to these kids. (laughs) I worry so much. Speaking of the knit-along, in case you are just hearing about it now, we are hosting our summertime knit-along, which is Make Good Cables. So hashtag Make Good Cables on Instagram. You should follow that. And there's not a specific pattern. Knit anything you want that has cables on it and share pictures. We've had a couple of posts that feature great cabled projects and great dogs. We encourage that content. Keep sharing pictures (laughs) with your pets. But we're excited to see what you work on, and this will be fun because some people are knitting small projects like hats, and other people are just really going for it and knitting amazing, intricate, cabled sweaters, and we support all of it. Keep posting. Hey, Jessica. Yes, Karen. Are you ready for a letter? Oh, I think I am. This week's letter comes from Stacy. Hi, Stacy. Why are some knitters not kind to crocheters? Our art is just as valuable, but oh, the condescension. Where did the great divide originate? Oh, Stacy, that's a big question. I would like to preface our response by saying we did some internet research because when we read your question, we feel you. We know exactly what you're talking about. 
And we wanted to give you an answer other than because some knitters are not nice (laughs) and they just are mean people. (laughs) I mean, A, that's kind of the truth a little bit because that's true of all types of people. But there has to be some sort of historical root or stigma that's associated with the craft. Like, why is this a thing? And it's a thing that a lot of us are aware of. The comparison I kept coming up against was like skiers and snowboarders. They're kind of doing the same thing. You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. But they have a lot of opinions and feelings about each other. This happens in all sorts of leisure activities. Communities of people set up these weird boundaries between each other. But we felt like there was maybe something to this question. And surprise, surprise, our suspicions were correct. So this time it's the Victorians that ruined everything. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We're finger wagging at you, Victorians. (laughs) The Puritans are off the hook at the moment. This week. Modern crochet, like crochet that we would recognize, the first like identifiable cases of it are from the 1600s in Europe. So crochet has been around for a long time, but we weren't able to identify any stigma around crochet at that early time. Where we started to see, for lack of a better term, bad attitudes about crochet was during the Victorian era, so mid-1800s, directly related to lace. Right. So this wasn't even initially like a knitters versus crocheters, like a West Side Story style conflict. It was about the production of lace in the UK. So we found out that commercially producing lace machines were invented in 1768. Prior to that, lace was all handmade. Before the invention of the lace machine, having a mistake in your lace was like scornful. You have messed up. You have not created a perfect creation. As soon as they invented a machine, having a mistake was proof that it was hand done. More valuable. Yeah. Because it wasn't mass produced. How interesting. Yeah. And that switch happened immediately. So we've got this commercial production of lace happening. People who were hand making lace were women who had leisure time at this point. During the 1800s, the Victorians were really into romanticizing this concept of like handmade lace and what that signified for women who were able to do it because it's kind of an involved process. Like any of you who are modern lace makers know that it's an art. It's a skill that you have to learn and practice to get good at. And it's time consuming. So these women who didn't have to work, they weren't doing manual labor. They weren't working in the kitchens. In the research we did, we found references to them as, like, delicate, clean women. Mm -hmm. And there's all of this, like, purity implication happening and these women coming together to create these beautiful, artful things. The way lace was made at this time is basically the same as how it's made now. You get, like, a foam pillow and you have a bunch of pins and then you have, like, a thousand little bobbins, at least, like, at minimum. This is an activity that you are doing if the expectation is that you are relatively sedentary. It's a set it down and leave it kind of project. It's not a very mobile craft. Right. Whereas during the mid-1800s, there was the famine in Ireland, the potato famine. And you start seeing crochet as an alternative to lace production that was accessible and more functional and could be like an income-generating activity for families that really needed an income-generating activity at that point. 
There were crochet cooperatives set up in Ireland where men and women and children were enlisted to come learn how to crochet and produce this crocheted lace. And it was in high demand, but it was also looked down on as an inferior product. Like this is inferior to the lace being produced by these upper-class Victorian ladies in their houses where they have rooms made intentionally for leisure. And it's inferior to the commercially produced lace, but it's something that they were having people produce as a means of income. It's classism is what we're getting at. Yes, very much. There were historical accounts of these women being referred to as grubby, people who were living in poor living conditions because of the economically depressed environment didn't necessarily have homes with electricity in the mid-1800s. <laughs> I couldn't have electricity in the house. I wouldn't sleep a wink. All those vapors seeping about. Hmm. So when we found the, quote, grubby women laboring in dark cottages, I was like, that is a loaded picture that you have made for us to think of who is crocheting the lace. Right. What they start doing is instead of the sort of upper class women making lace themselves, they actually commodify what should be leisure time from others. So now they are no longer the ones doing the production of their fancy top tier lace. They have found working class doing a production job women who they can then pay to make the lace with all the bobbins. There's probably a comparison to be made about some fast fashion. You have two fashion lines that are made in two different sweatshops, and one is very cheap and one is very expensive. So to bring this to our current time, if you're thinking about these women who were crocheting for work and they were making decorative edging for things in homes or for garments, it was a natural extension to continue crocheting because it is a fast fiber craft to crochet blankets or shawls or other things that you see in your home. Like crochet wasn't just a working thing. People did it in their own personal homes too. It was a quick way to produce these things that they needed to have in their homes. And it's a little scary to think back. 1850 is not as long ago as it feels like it was. 50 years later, some of our great-grandparents were definitely alive. And mm -hmm. I had a great-grandmother who was a crocheter and didn't knit things, but also didn't teach me how to crochet because I think there were kind of like feelings about the value of this handcraft, even though it was something that she did. But I think that cultural messaging about things and what is seen as valuable takes a long time to change. We can all think of different examples in life where things should probably be further along than they are. I think because of these maybe negative attitudes, the classism, that becomes a hard thing to break if nobody stops to think, why do we feel this way about it? Right. Where is that message coming from? And I think that contemporary crocheters are vocal maybe in like the last 10 years or so in ways that I had not at least noticed prior in my knitting life about crochet as a craft being just as valuable as knitting. When I started knitting, I feel like that attitude was really rampant. But more recently, people speak up and say, why do we think that crochet is not as valuable as knitting? And that designers are doing a lot of modern fashion things that felt like were maybe lagging a little bit behind the direction that knit designs were going in. So it's kind of an exciting time to be crocheting and watching crocheters create. Yeah. So while we are not crochet social anthropologists or anything like <laughs> 
a little bit of research that quickly turned up that Queen Victoria and a whole generation of people were like, this is a subpar handcraft, feels like very much related to the roots of whatever this inexplicable bad attitude that exists for some people is. It's like when kids repeat things that grown-ups say, and they don't really know why they're saying them. Yeah. And maybe it's time for all of us to question those assumptions and see everyone's handcraft for the valuable thing that it is and not be weird and judgy about whether you use hooks or needles. So I hope that was helpful. Interesting, Stacy. It doesn't solve the problem, but it maybe creates a little bit of historical context. And I know I definitely learned some things I didn't know. And hopefully we can all do better. I think that might be it for us this week. Sure is. You can listen to us anywhere you get your audio podcasts, maybe where you're listening to us right now. Rate and review make good. It helps other knitters find us. Tell your friends. Friends love sharing podcast suggestions. You can follow us on Instagram at makegoodpod. Big, huge, enormous thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. You're amazing. We appreciate you and you let us produce this podcast every week without ever taking on advertisers. You can visit our website, makegoodpod.com. Check out the show notes and the transcript there. You can also send us questions to dearscratch at scratchsupplyco.com. And just a reminder to please include your pronouns. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.